Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. I'm your host, Ben Gothard, and today we have the honor of speaking with Mila Deschamps. How are you doing today, Mila? Doing brilliantly, Ben, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. I truly appreciate that. Well, thank you for having a really awesome last name. That's, uh, you know, as a we were talking a little bit about it before and um you know i just love hearing those those kinds of stories about um you know about about names and and where everything comes from so right <laughs> so let me share a quick funny story uh, as we were speaking just now about my set name right so it's it's pronounced as default and i've had this happen to me so many times and i was actually at panera's just now ordering food and I saw my food ready at the counter and the server, bless his heart, <laughs> took the packet, took the receipt and I saw it was my name. And he looked around, he looked past me and looked at a Caucasian lady and approached her and said, oh ma'am, this is your order. And the lady was like, oh, this is not me. So I waited for five more minutes just to see if he would call out the name. And then he finally called out the name. And I approached him and I said, oh, that's my order. And he said, are you sure? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm absolutely sure it's my name. And I'm absolutely sure what I'm called. But it's funny. Not funny as in, ha, ha, you do not know any role. But it's funny because it has happened to me so many times. But it's interesting how we just have this preconceived notion or or knowledge that how to relate up in the names with a particular type of stereotypical look or stereotype of, of a person or a situation and it happens to me all the time so it's like i've been married for 16 years so it has happened to me for 16 years so i just laugh about it <laughs> <laughs> well you know my last name is gothard and people mess my last name up all the time and you know, I always think it's really funny talking about last names. I always love to share this with people. Um, but, uh, you know, I get I get Gothard and Goche. And um, my dad one time, um, he actually had somebody call him Goat Herder one time. <laughs> oh, my. I was like, where do you even get that from? That's It's not even close. <laughs> so no. It's not <laughs> And speaking of names, right, it's it's in different parts of the world because I've had the humble opportunity to be in different parts of the world, but it's interesting how how so quickly people are to make fun of the name, right? And I feel sometimes it's out of innocence, sometimes it's not out of innocence. Um, I, I used to have this friend from Pakistan and his name was Ali. <laughs> and rather than calling Ali, you know, uh, we have had some common friends who'd call him Tevin or, you know, just like really bad slurs. And I call it slurs because it, it's disrespectful and it, it kind of dehumanizes someone because your name is very, very true to you, right? Even if it's given by your parents or even if you decide to, cho to choose or later in life to switch it. It's true to you, it is your identity. When you just respect that name, I feel like it dehumanizes someone where you're not giving that respect or that. I agree. I agree. So, you know, I want to I wanna shift gears a little bit 
because I'm really curious to learn uh, what is your story? Oh, man, <laughs> it's a long story, but I'll share my story. So, well, it's when we talk about adversities, right? People often think that um, you, you need to have a really fantastic, a really brilliant story to share only if you are an influencer or if you are a celebrity, right? But I feel that everyone is an influencer based on the stories that they have experienced and they carry. So my story started um, years ago, right? So since the age of nine, nine, ten, I was actually bullied as a child from the ages of nine to twelve. And when I say bullied, it was just not a single length of bullying. I was bullied by my teacher. I was bullied by my friends. And how I was bullied by my teacher was a very dehumanizing act. Because I was not a very fast learner. I was labeled as the stupid child. And I was not only labeled as the stupid child, I was actually physically put in a group at the back of a class by my teacher and she named that group stupid group and she announced to the whole class Mila belongs in that group way at the back of the class so can you imagine in front of a class of 40 mates and your teacher saying that and you know defaming your character shaming your intelligence shaming your ability to learn or your ability to become it kind of corroded my confidence and that was not the only thing that she did to me which I felt that which was abusive she physically abused me where she would slap me every single day uh, she would slap me every single day she would pull my hair she would grab my hair she'll pull it and slam it against the wall and at the age of well, all the way from 9 to 12 and experiencing that made me believe that I was truly stupid I was incapable of anything and this became normalized right because her actions made it normal where she could bully someone and she, she bullied me she took me as a target because I was really a slow learner and she'd call me names like you're stupid you will not amount to anything you'll be a rubbish person or you'll pick up people's rubbish when you grow up that's your career and I believed that because that Whatever had experienced that experience shaped my reality, shaped my idea of what I should be, it shaped my identity. And during that phase of ages from nine to twelve, I had this fear, this paralyzing fear where I could not speak up because that fear dehumanized me to a point where it corroded my identity. It corroded my confidence and eliminated my voice. I was so afraid to speak up. Because when someone calls you stupid every day or beats you every day or just dismisses you as a human, it affects you at a very nuanced and deep level. And that carried on throughout my teenage years. That confidence was broken and was hard to build and during my teenage years, I carried that baggage along with me, but it manifested and morphed in a different form, right? 
um, I became a teenager, I had really good mentors, I really had good teachers, and that was the time where I really realized that what I was good in, and I realized how I learned, and how I excelled, and I excelled well in maths, and chemistry, and physics, and I excelled well in arts. It's such a weird combination, right? Math, science, and then dancing. <laughs> it's such a polarizing thing. Now, I excelled well in it, and but that, that harsh reality when I, that I experienced from the ages of nine to 12 shaped and really kind of ingrained that self-doubt in me. And I carried it everywhere I went, but it manifested in the form of image, self-image, how I saw myself. And that led me to become bulimic from the ages of 16 all the way to 21. And I hate it. I absolutely hate it how or whom I have become because always along the journey, I continuously doubted my confidence, continuously doubted my identity. And that weird voice from my teacher that you're not good enough, you're stupid, you'll never become anyone surfaced every time I had an opportunity to shine. Right? And every time I would hear, oh, your idea is stupid, or this is not a good idea. And that voice would come up again, reminding me, yes, Mila, you're not getting there. And I tried very, very hard to suppress it, right? And suppressing those emotions was not the right thing, which I learned later on in my years. And during my adulthood, I went about my life. And I had a very successful career of you know, forming my business and then working for a Fortune 500 company, not one but a few. Until that same emotion surfaced again during my corporate tenure. During my corporate tenure, I was bullied again. And this is that time, right? The, the bullying thing is surfacing. I was bullied again during my corporate tenure, not by one manager, but a few managers. I was told that I was not good enough. I can't speak English, even though I'm conversing in English and I, I can't present, I can't speak. My skills are not good enough. I'm not worthy. And I was a global program manager, managing different regions and spearheading projects. Excuse me. And, and while I was getting great feedback from my peers from cross international teams and managers that I'm doing a fantastic job. My managers kept on saying, you're not getting there, you're stupid. They picked every single thing I did as a flaw. And it created the shackles, right? It created a very volatile space where doubt started coming back in. And to be in that environment, I call it daily venomous environment where every day because I, I did not only work for eight hours a day but I worked uh, for 16 hours a day every day if sometimes even Saturdays and Sundays 16 to 18 hours a day so I'll wake up at 4 a.m I'll brush my feet immediately log in to do work and I'll just do work until not even lunch I would not even get a lunch break I would just go pee quickly, grab tea, grab food, come back to my computer, eat as I work. And I work all the way till like 10 p.m. or sometimes 7 p.m. 
and being in that environment where all I had was this is not right and to open up emails of 4 a.m of nasty emails from your manager and nasty pings I am messages from your manager and that made me feel like the child I was when I was nine and made me experience that fear again that anxiety again that depression again that doubt again and I actually stood on top of a building last year June ready to jump off uh, because I just could not I just could not do it anymore um, I would wake up at 2 a.m crying panicking thinking that oh my god is this who I am am I really not an integral part of society am I really not valuable and the words right words are so powerful words are powerful to such a depth that they can lift you up or push you down or push people to suicide and I walk at that brink standing on top of a building ready to jump off and this is going to sound really really ridiculous but as I was about to jump off I heard a voice saying stop and there was no one around but no one around and I asked as I heard the voice, I received a text from my sister saying, are you okay? And my sister had no clue what I was going through. And that was the defining factor for me to step back, to walk away from my corporate career and really look into what fear can do, how fear affects us and how we should really use words to lift someone up and really build people to become rather than just limit them right and that really propelled to start my company and here i am today well that's a i've never heard a story like that before um so thank you very much for sharing um and and it seems like you know one of the one of the focuses of of what you're doing now is really studying that fear and, and studying that language. Um, and I'm curious to learn, like, what have you found in your research? What have you found in your studies? Uh, I mean, that, that it's such an important and, and fascinating topic. Right. So I spent, I walked out my career last year in July, right? And then I, I took a break. And as I took a break, I was healing because healing is the first step that you, you have to undergo that journey. And while I was healing, I was trying to look into what fear is, right? People often say, oh, fear is an illusion. It is not an illusion. It actually causes such an impact that it, it causes detrimental effects. So... As I was researching all these things, I started digging into how I felt when I was a child and how I felt during my teenage years and how I felt during my adulthood, during my corporate tenure. I started talking with people who have experienced fear and what fear does to someone. And I started asking questions to a lot of people, not just in the US, but I actually traveled to Southeast Asia as well and interviewed a bunch of people and that's when I started finding there are three degrees of fear. 
the first degree comes from a lens of insecurity, right? Insecurities, I call it the, um, the what ifs. What if I'm not good enough? What if my teacher says no? What if someone says no to me? What if I can't get, get on this podcast? Right? What if I do not get one million followers? And these are the insecurities that is being built or conditioned by society's expectations or society's imposed judgment or opinions from a limited perspective of us. And that's the first degree of insecurity, right? It's from a lens of insecurities. That degree, what it does is that it limits us, but it does not pushes or corrode us of our right. It limits us to a point where, okay, I can't do this. It, it, it just prevents you to taking that step because that's what you've been told all your life. And some people, from my research, what I found is that the first degree of, of fear from the insecurity act, right? Some people just need a push right a push as in yeah not like let me walk you through or let me give you all the resources but walking along the journey with them right like imagine being a child and say and, and telling your mom mom i can't I, I i do not feel like going out today because i feel like i can't swim today and your mom asks why can't you swim today and you can say oh i'm afraid of water what does your mom do you know, your mom would give you floaties, right? To eliminate that insecurity and creating that space of safeness. So that's the first degree of fear, which comes from a lens of insecurities. And that can be eased away, not overnight, but rather easily by conditioning us and challenging us. How can we push ourselves with resources and support to get through this? And then I found. Sorry, you're going to say something. Yeah, yeah. I have a question about about the first degree of fear because, and by the way, I think I am so excited to talk about this because I've never heard it quite in in this way. I'm I'm very curious. For the first degree, though, these underlying insecurities, it seems like, and and I totally agree with you that it's conditioned by society, conditioned by, I mean we're a mass media culture where we're constantly getting marketed to saying, Hey, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. And then we have these deep rooted insecurities of you're not good. Like I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Right. And I feel like a lot of people have those. My question is how do you identify which ones you are truly, um, you're truly struggling with the most, right? Because I, I love the idea of reconditioning yourself to overcome that. But my question is how, if, if we don't know what it is in the first place, how do we condition against it? Right. You see what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, how do we identify that? Sure. So what has helped me right throughout my journey and I've shared this with a few people. I do the, it's, I call it the meditation exercise well it's not really a meditation exercise i just call it the meditation exercise and meditation is so nuanced right and i do this exercise because i want to recognize how i am feeling and when people say oh don't talk about your feelings talk about your feelings and that's part of 
emotional intelligence, right? And emotional stability and emotional health. The first step to identify is what I did was sit down. I took a piece of paper and pen, well, not a piece of paper, but book. this is my black book. I, I write everything in here, all my thoughts, how I'm going through, how I'm struggling, how I'm going to solve my problems, my issues. And I started writing. The power of writing is often misunderstood. The power of writing, I'm not saying typing, do not do it on your phone. Holding a pen, again, it's getting to sound like, rich signs to some people but i truly believe in this i believe in the power of vibration i believe in the power of energy transfer hold a pen write when you write your thoughts you are actually seeing what you're writing you're feeling what you're writing it's vibrating through you your brain registers what you're writing right there are connections between vibration cells, your eyes, and your brain. And when you write your thoughts as to what you're struggling with, why you're feeling the way you are, why you are afraid of this, and who is making you feel the way that you're feeling, I always go back to who, what, why, when, how. That's how I coped with all these fears. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling insecure? Who made me feel insecure? When was it that I was made insecure? How was I made to feel insecure? I started writing it down. And through writing, we receive clarity, right? When we write, we receive clarity, we revisit again. And that's exactly what I did. I wrote it down and went back to visit again with who, why, what, when, how. The more I revisited it and I wrote it down, I finally identified what was the situation, why was I afraid of it, who made me feel fearful, how was I made to feel? And then I started writing. If this was the situation that made me feel fearful, what did I do back then? Because I didn't want to repeat that behavior and I repeated it three times as a child, as a teenager, as an adult because I was running away. What did I do back then? And what can I do now? And I focus on micro actions, right? Because when we are conditioned, conditioned to feel this way, to act this way, and asking those questions of who, how, what, what when, why, helps us to really decipher that conditioning aspect and really allows us to recognize this is what has happened. This is what I used to do. And then the next thing I did was identify consciously. I call it conscious thought. You have to do it with conscious execution, conscious thinking, conscious belief. And I wrote down those micro actions as to what I can do. So I was so afraid to, to speak live after getting bullied and after listening to you're not good enough, you're not a good speaker, you can't speak English, because someone else is gauging my success based on their lens. And I started writing micro-actions, right? Because I believed that I couldn't speak. And I wrote down micro-actions as to, today I'm going to speak or record a 10-second video. 
really small, just 10 seconds, but ten, believe me, Ben, 10 seconds will feel like 10 hours. <laughs> and that's what I did. 10 seconds of just filming a video and I, all I said was, hello world, or hello sexy people. Like, bring your true character out. And it's, it's really difficult to bring it out, especially when, when you've been abused or when your real identity has been suppressed so damn right. It's been just hidden way at the bottom, at basement number 30. And you're finding it hard to bring it out. These micro actions or micro thoughts, conscious thoughts, allows you to move that needle closer and closer to the, not the finish line, but the line that you can cross over to building that confidence back again and reprogramming your brain. Because when you express gratitude, right, when you express gratitude every single day, even if it's one gratitude a day, we notice a change in how we feel and how things around us manifest. And that's the exact principle I've applied to switching that mindset or behavior to reconditioning as ourselves. It needs to come from a very conscious place of mind and heart. I think that's awesome. And as somebody who broadcasts all the time, like I love what I do. In the beginning, it was super hard. Like I didn't know what I was doing and I was very scared and I just kind of winged it. Like I was just, you know, just doing it, just trying it. And this idea of like the micro actions of just taking a little bit, like a tiny step, the tiniest of steps, even 10 seconds. I love that because it's possible. And once you, once you take that first little bitty step, the next one's easier and the next one's okay. easier. And it gets a little bit easier every single time to where now, you know, like I, I love, I mean, I've always loved these, these conversations, but to me, it's like, it's just part of my, it's part of me, you know? And so the, the, the idea of those little micro actions in order to regain that confidence and rebuild it and to, to overcome, um, that first level uh, of, of fear that to me is, is brilliant. And I love those pointed questions of really giving yourself prompts to go through and answer specifically in order to identify and like very, very specifically um, locate that fear. I love that. So, okay. So that was the very first level. Um, what's the second one? So the second degree of fear, I call it from a lens of restriction, right? Lens of restriction, it combines your first degree of fear and then adds onto a lens of restriction. And this comes from a place where, it, and this is commonly, commonly found at the workplace, right? At the workplace or in schools or even in our nation or different countries, right? Where there's political instability or just war going on. Restriction, what, the first question I like to always start with is, what is restriction, right? When people impose a law or policy and you can't do anything about it. That's what we are told, you can't do anything about it. And if you do, you will, face 
the repercussions, right? And that's the lens of restriction. So I'm going to use the example of a workplace. So when people show up at the workplace, we are constantly told, again, you can't do this, you can't do that. And a job, right, when you, when you go into a job, a job title, and your manager says, okay, you're only supposed to do this. You can't reach out to anyone else. If you reach out, you will lose your job. If you reach out, you will get demoted. So those are all restrictions. And those kind of restrictions have got deeper, deeper cuts for a human, right? So what happens is that not only you are imposing, imposing your opinions on someone, you're imposing this shackles onto them, but you are demoralizing them to a point where they have got no more right. So anything that they want to do or they have got to do, it has got to go through chains of command. So someone is using a place of power to restrict you from growing or from saying or from doing. And that leads to corroding someone's identity. But when it corrodes the identity, it corrodes at a very, very slow rate. The faster rate goes into degrees, third degree of fear. And this is the beginning where it goes into corroding your identity halfway, where you can't speak, right? But when you say, you can speak, but in, in the form of you can't speak at. When you think about identity, a person's identity, right? What is made out of someone's identity? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Your name. Right. One of them, but but also your beliefs and your ability to speak and to voice your opinions and to not like to not be filtered to not be yeah not not be filtered to be able to speak freely you bring a very great point your name your voice not being able to uh, able to to speak out a voice freely and those are what falls under the identity and corroding your identity, right? So restrictions, what happens is that when people put restrictions on you and prevent you from speaking, it takes away your identity a little bit. At meetings, and I've seen it so many times, and during my research, I've spoken to so many people at the workplace and I've asked, how do you feel restricted at the workplace where it triggers your fear? And People have said, not just in the US, but in different parts of the world as well. The first thing is being in a meeting at a workplace, right? When they are in a meeting at a workplace and they are about to voice something or they have voice there, the feedback that they get is, oh, that's not a good idea. That's a stupid idea. It's dismissing someone, right? When you're dismissing someone, you're shutting someone down. When you're shutting someone down, you're saying you're of no value. Right? When, you're saying someone, when you're telling someone that you're of no value, you're actually saying your voice is not important over here. You are not welcome over here. And then the other research I found was when people saying that when they voice out, they, they will not even be acknowledged as a person. They will not even be called, oh, thank you, Ben. Oh, Ben, that's a great idea. It, they will just be dismissed in such a form, that's a dumb idea. And they'll go around the room where the managers will 
acknowledged everyone. And when it comes to this particular person, they will not even acknowledge them or they'll act as though when this person speaks up, the manager will say, oh, was that Lisa? Rather than was that Mary? So just kind of like acting as though they do not know your name corrodes your identity, right? Corrodes your confidence. It kind of reduces you as a person who's present at the moment. And that is directly related with your identity. How do you show up in places? So all these restrictions imposed by a person of power comes, falls under the lens of restriction. And that has got direct impact on our identity, on our voice, on our ability to perform, on our ability to even think, right? Or to speak or to articulate. When someone says you're not good enough, it's a dumb idea. You'll be so afraid to speak that your ability to speak would not be fluent anymore. We, we will tend to stammer, we'll tend to pause a lot, we'll tend to say ums a lot. So that is how impactful second degree of fear becomes. Hmm. That's really interesting to note the difference between the the first degree, um, which you know it seems like is is more of um, more of our insecurities and societal conditioning, and the second degree, which is these restrictions imposed by our more immediate environment in, mm -hmm. in the direct authority figures that we have in our lives. That's, that's very interesting. So I'm curious because, um, you know, I, I tend to think very, uh, very logically and, you know, whenever, for example, whenever I write, I love, 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 love incorporating statistics and, uh, different researchers and, you know, professors and, uh, I always like to to know about the the research. Uh, so I'm curious to know, like, what sort of scientific standards or, um, like, like I'm curious about about your research process mm -hmm. and and how did you, you know, how did you account for error? How did you pick your your sample, um, the people that you reached out to? What was sort of the the scientific or, or academic rigor that you put into uh, uh, getting your data and, and doing the science piece, the research piece? Right. So <clears throat> I did multiple types of research. So first was focus groups, right? And um, because I wanted to capture people's direct interaction and direct uh, responses for spontaneous responses where I didn't want them to feel that they were being watched. I, I created a safe space, right? Where I had the facilitator, I had the mediator, I had people, I had a research scientist participate in it as well. Then I used qualitative research and then quantitative research. And, and then on top of that, I started interviewing people. Right, and when I was researching online as to the fear, like, is there, are there any theories of fear, or what really triggers fear? And all I could find was mortality rate, right? 
and I started, uh, I re even reached out to a professor from um, my old professor, who was actually a human conditioning professor from University of Wisconsin Parkside. And I started speaking with him and he started uh, advising me in how to actually go about this anytime I had questions. So, and then I started digging deeper into the different theories that we have, right? Some of the theories is the looking glass self, where you know we kind of form our identity based on how other people form our our appearance, not appearance, our identity. So when a teacher says that you're stupid, you believe that and you take on that. And I started using all those theories and I started challenging those theories as well as to, if this is the case, how can I challenge this further? But those are some of the ways that I started using my research as to, uh, how can I have multiple sources of research? Well, I'm not just doing one type of a research where it's just focus groups. I started doing focus groups. I started, but that's why I wanted to have focus groups to really dig deep into that uh, really qualitative data. And then I digged into interviews, uh, just one-on-one -on -one interviews, because when you do one-on-one -on -one interviews, that's the real experience coming from people, right? And when you have real experience coming from people, you can't deny that, saying that, oh, that's not valid. So I collected every possible stories I started getting. And then I, I worked with research scientists and really kind of like condensing it into behavior, thought process, and action right and really analyzing that data and to support that i used my qualitative data but you know it's anonymous it's it's it, because qualitative data is you can get it oh uh, sorry qual, uh, yeah qualitative data you can get it in masses so i started really segregating and use, and use that data to analyze and to fit into different groups and once I fit it into different groups, I started using theories to support if this is right or if this is not right. And if theories didn't fit it, that's fine because I didn't want a theory to influence what humans are feeling. Because I feel like communication or human conditioning is constantly evolving, right? And every or any research that we do in the world tends to evolve as well so that's that's the plane that i approached this whole research from to gain different forms of research from different forms of people not just singular i had diversity and then condense it to a method where i can have data to speak on uh, without <laughs> without revealing who are these people right um i want i wanted to protect the identities of people as well um, and that was one of the things that I, I noticed while researching a lot of people were so afraid to speak they were willing to share but were so afraid to show their identities and that itself was data for me um, so that's how i did i i used various methods of research which allowed me to condense it into data and have advisors who are research scientists and human conditioning professors.
Well, that definitely checks out in my book. That's uh that's a really interesting process of going through and building out different streams of data and putting that all together and then bringing academic advisors who are in a relevant field mm -hmm. and really putting it all together to create data and, right. and being able to use the data to then draw conclusions from. That's very, very interesting. Um, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to discuss that. So, okay, we talked about the first and second degrees. Let's hop into the third one. I'm curious to know what that one is. Ah, uh, the third degree then, <laughs> which I experienced, right? That degree of fear comes from a lens of dehumanization. And when I say dehumanization, I want to ask a question first. When, when I say dehumanization, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, like prison or a, or a, a total institution, um, just something horrible, like something that's really, really bad. I mean, I, I'm also biased because I'm Jewish and, uh, and, and I read a lot about, uh, Jewish history and, um, honestly it makes me think of the Holocaust also of just complete disregard for human life and, not seeing people as people, but treating people as animals or worse than that. And you're right. Um, this is exactly where it comes from, a lens of dehumanization, the third degree of fear. And it happens in any place of community, right? Or community of practice. A community of practice is where anybody could be her home. It could be schools. It could be religious congregations at work in society, countries. And the lens of dehumanization is the absolute, absolute worst kind of fear that someone can experience. And it corrodes a human completely of their identity, completely of their confidence, completely of their worth, completely of any human qualities they have. I've seen this happen. We have seen this happen. Um, Holocaust is one. Right. And what's happening in different countries during war, right? And it happens in workplaces too, where you know someone not only restricts you, but disregards you. And this can be in implementing policies, right? In implementing policies to take away your rights. I know that our policies implemented for, for women recently in the US, taking away your right. And it instills a certain kind of fear in you where if you are to if you want to have an abortion, you can't have an abortion and you'll be punished, right? I feel that that's dehumanizing to a very, very deep point point as well, where you're not giving someone's rights as a person. And let me take it back to the workplace again. And I've seen this so many uh, times happening. A factory, right? In a factory place, you have a production line. In a production line, you have all humans working at 10 hour shift or 12 hour shift or sometimes 16 hour shift. And I went into this production line to do research where 
how are these humans being treated? Right? They come to work, they stand, pregnant women stand, with uh, what people with like diabetes or where they can't stand for too long, their legs would be swollen. They are made to stand and they're made to, to work for whatever hours that they are supposed to work and they, then they get 15 minutes of break. Excuse me. Um, once they get that break, if 15 minutes it's timed, right? You need to pee and you can't pee prior to that. You can't pee after that. Only this 15 minute window. And, and that act itself is dehumanizing to prevent someone from sitting down based on your health reasons or prevent someone from peeing, right? Or prevent someone from eating when they are hungry. And 15 minutes, 15 minutes window, when you have a team of 30 people sharing one toilet or a very small space, or the time taken to walk from the production line to the rest area takes up about five to six minutes, leaving you nine minutes. How can you shove food, shove water down your throat, go take a pee when the queue is so long? Those kind of acts reduces you as a human, eliminates your freedom to be a human, to do what you want. I totally understand the production, whatever, but that needs to go because we're no longer in an industrialization era. Those kind of acts dehumanize people, right? When you are in a position where you're so restricted, where again, lens of restriction comes into place in the lens of dehumanization. When you have so much of restrictions, right? It reduces you as a person where you can't do this. And you start to have the cyclical thinking that I am in a bad place. And you, your choice, your ability to think, right? Because you're under so much of stress, what that stress does is disconnect your brain cells. Once your brain cells are disconnected, you don't have the ability to think deeply. You create this myopic vision as to this is the only job I have. Right? It dehumanizes you to a point and reduces your work so little that you feel that all I have is this job and I'll live from paycheck to paycheck. And sometimes people don't even live from paycheck to paycheck. They borrow money. And, and not having the basic rights as a human, right, reduces your ability to be a human. And that comes from a lens of dehumanization. And I've seen people have spoken to quite a number of people who are working the factory line where some people have expressed that they feel suicidal i've spoken with some of the people whom i've researched with on focus groups or one-on-one -on -one interviews where they undergo depression people think depression comes from laziness it is it's not laziness depression comes from a point where you're constantly set told no you're constantly said that you do not have a place in this society when you're constantly not given resources to be a human right according to Maslow's law we know that we need basic needs water you know food and then it goes up the law the hierarchy law but those 
things are reduced, right? We see a heightened rate of homelessness, right? When we see people who are homeless, those are all coming from a lens of dehumanization, where resources are taken away from you, where you are treated as though you're not a human. And when you are reduced to that level, your, your confidence is no longer there, your voice is no longer there, your identity is no longer there, your ability to, to have hope is no longer there. When you do not have hope, you've given up. When you've given up, you feel like there are no options. And you feel like I am stuck in this position. Some people go on with being stuck, or some people turn to suicide, turn to drugs, turn to alcohol. That's what fear comes from, from a lens of dehumanization, when it reduces you to the lowest low, and you feel like other people are looking at you as the bottom feeders of the sea. So I think this is fascinating research, and it, it just makes me think about something that I, I don't know the answer to. Uh, and, and I'm curious to get your take on it, given the research that, that you've been doing. Um, but th this idea of being in this state of dehumanization and not having any resources, not having um, basic rights, not having, um, you know, on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that very first rung of the ladder. And I believe I heard you saying that how a lot of people get there is getting those things taken from them. And I'm curious to learn your, your take on the idea of having to take control of your own destiny, right? Because I feel like we are all in control of what happens to us in life. And we may not realize it at different points on our journey, but I believe we do have the ability to take control. At the same time, I'm a little conflicted because it seems like, well, there are situations where somebody will come in and take something from somebody else. But, and, and it's like, okay, well, the one person's being the aggressor, but the other person, the, their actions put them in that position. So it's like how it seems like it, there's almost this duality of, okay, well, we're all in control of our own destiny and we're in, in control of our own lives, but maybe we don't realize it. But is it not still at the end of the day up to us to, to take control and to realize it? You know, you see what I'm, what I'm kind of oh, getting at right, here? Right, right. That's a very great point that you bring up, Pan. And for some people, it's more easy for them to realize that they are in control of their lives, right? Um, from some of the people whom I've spoken to in Southeast Asia, cultural perspective comes into place, right? And that's one of the things that I had to take into consideration on this research. Cultural perspective comes into place. Also, it leads back to how we have been conditioned. But the cultural perspective in some parts of the world is that they do not have a choice. They're not given the choice, or even if they have the choice, 
that are just in that like it's detrimental repercussions um hence why most women refused to like they told me not to show their faces on on the video that i did or not to reveal their names because there were political repercussions um, where they would be ostracized from the country they would be ostracized or killed um, I don't know if you've heard about honor killings, but honor killings was one of it. Our ostracization from countries were one of it. And I'm so thankful, I am really, really thankful that I live in the United States. And in the United States, we have the liberty, the liberty, the freedom of speech, freedom uh, to assemble, right? It's, it's just a brilliant country, which I'm so grateful for. But Me too. We do, we do not have the same liberty that we have in the United States, it's not readily available for people from different parts of the world or in, in cultural uh, practices, right? Yes, it is up to us to <clears throat> excuse me, make that change. We have to try to make that change, but it does not decipher well in different parts of the world where even if they feel like, okay, I'm gonna speak up today, or I'm gonna retaliate, I'm gonna do this for myself today, it truly becomes where it leads to killings, where people will be like, oh, you are of different caste, you can't be doing this. It becomes a struggle for them. It becomes such a struggle for them that they choose to be where they are. And it, again, it's a personal choice, but the choice is related to, if I do this, I will always be known as the beggar industry or no one will give you the respect according to different because there's caste system as well in different parts of the world and it's just such a struggle to see these people wanting to move up and taking their own life in their hands and at the same time constantly being pushed down by society so that's where I do not have a solution for that yet. And the solution does not come just from me. I, I think it's a collective, collaborative effort by everyone and not just from people from that country. Because when we want to see change, when we want to remove those dehumanization acts, or when we want to move that lens of dehumanization to a lens of empowerment, I truly, truly believe it's a collaborative, unified act of global people. And again, it, it's like I said, it's like we in the United States have so much of liberty to take, you know, take ownership, do what you want. We have the resources. At the same time, when someone is way at the bottom, there are underlying reasons as to why they don't want to take action or if they're being knocked down and knocked down. And sometimes I feel like sometimes as humans all we need to do is give them a resource like lift them up and let's see how they get out so that's how i approach it from that perspective well that was a very thoughtful answer that's actually one of the best answers to that question that i think i've ever heard um you. and you know i do want to just also kind of mirror what you were saying about being very grateful to be in the united states because we have every advantage and I am so, 
so thankful and grateful for that. And uh, it's just, it amazes me, um, you know, how, how lucky we really are. It really, really does. I echo you, Ben. It's, it's like I came to, to the States 16, 16 years ago, right, 16 years ago. And it's just, I lived in different parts of the world. I've experienced different, different types of living, different types of lifestyle, which I'm so thankful for. And my dad has always, always taught me, Mila, you have to travel and experience the same thing three times or more at different stages in your life. By different stages, he meant different decades. So if he said, he said if you travel at 15, travel again at 25, travel again at 35. And if you traveled at 25, travel at 35, 45. And you have to do that, apply that same concept when you approach things three times at three different decades in your life. And the reason why he said that is because we have to learn the same thing, readapt because our personalities change, our characters change, our perspective changes, our, our tolerance to accept, tolerance to reject, tolerance to become, everything changes at the same time. He said that that situation or that country or the people in that particular country, they evolve. And he said the familiar becomes the unfamiliar. And that was just an eye-opening thing for me. And when I came to the States, right, it's, it's like, it's something new. But, but comparing, it, not comparing as like, oh, you, you're better than me. No. But it's just so humbling to learn that how much of liberty we have over here, how much of resources that we have over here at our fingertips, right? And we have the liberty to walk away from if someone is putting, approaching us right from a lens of restriction or imp imposing fear from a lens of dehumanization. We have the right to stand up and say, I'm done with this BS. I'm walking away from this. And I'm doing something. But this liberty is not available to different like people in different countries or different parts of the world. And I'm truly, truly, like, actually, truly, oh my God, truly, I'm so grateful to be here. That's wonderful. Well, uh, Mila, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the show today um, and talking about the, the, your research and your work and sharing your story. Um, this has been so fascinating to me. So I just want to express my gratitude to you and, and acknowledge you and say thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for your time. And thank you for sharing this space with me. I feel that by you giving me your time and sharing this space of dialogue and exchange, you actually respecting me as a human. And I'm so grateful for you for, for offering that to me. And thank you for everything that you're doing giving people a voice on your platform. Well, thank you very much. And uh, to everybody who's watching and listening, I want to say thank you as well. Um, you know, everybody who, who watches and, and listens to the show, um, all of you wonderful people, I'm so grateful for y'all uh, and, and the time that y'all share with us. So um, thank y'all very much. Mila, thank you. And I will see everybody on the next episode. Take care now.